Togo Mizrahi's film, Sa'a Seba, Seven O'Clock from 1937, opens with a traveling shot as the credits roll. The camera travels four blocks along Sharif Street, passing through Manshia Square, the heart of Alexandria's commercial business district. It then takes a right turn on Seba Abinat Street, passing the French gardens. The shot ends as the camera approaches the seawall overlooking the Mediterranean. In this footage, in addition to the mobility of the camera, the viewer witnesses a city in motion, pedestrians, horse-drawn carriages, cars, a bus, and a tram traverse the city streets. The footage reflects the spontaneity of an actuality. A youthful passerby leaps joyfully into the frame, mugging for the camera. Yet, the camera manages to capture a cross-section of Alexandrian society. Men and women in Western dress walk alongside laborers in galabias, carrying sacks and rolling large spindles. The camera also records police officers, carriage drivers, construction workers, and a Sufi cleric. On the right side, as the camera approaches the seawall, we see a monumental structure under construction. The visible semicircular colonnade would soon house a statue of Khadiv Ismail, Egypt's ruler from 1863 to 1879. Ismail is known as the builder of the Suez Canal and modern Cairo, as well as the architect of Egypt's late 19th century debt crisis. In 1938, one year after the film was shot, the monument, a gift from Italy, would be ceremonially unveiled by the Italian community of Alexandria. Both the colonnade and the statue were positioned to face the Mediterranean, symbolizing Egypt turned toward the West. By contrast to the symbolic positioning of the monument, the visual narrative of the film does not continue in a straight line from the port of Alexandria to the northern shore of the Mediterranean. In seven o'clock, the seawall serves as a barrier. The traveling shot ends the film cuts to footage shot from a fixed camera position at the seawall, pivoting to display and mimic the curved coastline of Alexandria's Eastern Harbor. At the end of the shot, the camera has turned around, orienting itself inward toward Egypt, ad Egyptum. In the diegesis too, circular urban trajectories give way to a journey along a linear axis from its position on the Alexandria seaside promenade the camera points southward, establishing the trajectory of the narrative. Welcome to Middle East Center Book Talk, the Oxford podcast on new books about the Middle East. These are books, some of which are written by our community and also books that our community is talking about. My name is Walter Armbrust and I teach social anthropology of the Middle East here and also graduate options on mass media of the Middle East. My guest tonight is Deborah Starr. Deborah is a professor of modern Arabic and Hebrew literature and film in the Department of Near Eastern Studies at Cornell University, and also Cornell's director of the Jewish Studies program. She writes and teaches about identity and intercommunal exchange in the modern Middle East with a focus on the Jews of Egypt. And she recently published a very interesting book on an Egyptian film director, Togo Mizrahi, who was a member of Egypt's once thriving Jewish community 
and also the most prolific director of the early years of Egyptian cinema, from roughly the early 1930s until the early post-World War II era. The title of the book is Togo Mizrahi and the Making of Egyptian Cinema. It's published by the University of California Press, came out in 2020. I know the book from having read a manuscript version of it, and though I had seen many of Togo Mizrahi's films, which remain very popular with Arabic-speaking audiences, I can't say I had really appreciated just how important he was until reading the manuscript. Deborah, welcome to Book Talk. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really delighted to be in conversation with you in, in real time. And welcome to the Middle East Center community, at least virtually speaking. Let me start by asking you to tell something about how the writing of your book was done. What made you want to write about Togo Mizrahi? What was most distinctive about him and his work? So I came to this, I sort of backed into this project from my first book, Remembering Cosmopolitan Egypt, where I looked at the nostalgia from the post-dispersion, you know, late 20th century literature and film um, about the interwar period and the cosmopolitanism that they reflected in that period. And I was very curious to see what was happening in the interwar period for which these writers and filmmakers were nostalgic. And so I had initially envisioned this as a broader comparative project, looking at an, a variety of different films. And I do weave some other films into my discussion of Togo Mizrahi's work. I see him in the broader context of 1930s and 40s, you know, early Egyptian cinema. But I found his work, you know, extremely compelling. I found his films a lot of fun to watch. And I realized I had a lot to say about his films and looking at early cinema through the lens of his work gave me, you know, sort of a, a really interesting perspective on what was motivating early cinema professionals. And another sort of preliminary question, what was most challenging about writing this book? What were your sources? What obstacles did you encounter and how did you overcome them? Well, some of the, you know, look, and as you well know, accessing materials, you know, in, in Egyptian archives is, is really, is really challenging. And I was, uh, you know, I really got started working on this book in 2009. And of course, you know, in 2011, everything changed in Egypt and it became sort of difficult for me to, to travel when I'd like this sort of the key por portion of the time that I was trying to do the research for this book. You know, but I was, I found early uh, journals from the, the 19, you know, 1920s, 30s, and 40s um, in a variety of different archives and was able to access them outside of Egypt in order to, you know, to get a broad picture of what was going on in um, the media environment in Egypt in those years and to look for places where, you know, Togo Mizrahi's films were reviewed, where there were sort of uh, gossip columns about cinema, you know, actors in particular, who, who was working with whom, who signed contracts with whom. And so, so a lot of that material was there. And uh, I also was very fortunate to be able to um, access archives, personal archives of uh, his family. And so I was able to find, you know, hear, hear family stories about what he was like after, um, after having left Egypt and what information and documents they had that helped flesh out him as a, as a person um, and not just as a you know, person who appears in the media. Yeah, well, I have to say that, you know, although archival sources are often hard to come by when you're doing research on something like this, YouTube turns into a kind of unprecedented archive. Um, it actually makes writing about films much easier in many ways than it was when I first began doing it. 
that is absolutely true. I mean, as far as the films themselves, YouTube was an invaluable resource. I mean, I had been gathering films in a variety of formats uh, from, you know, VHS to DCDs to DVDs, things that were restored and, and re released. But, you know, the broadcasts on satellite television um, and people capturing those and putting them up on YouTube has been an incredible resource for finding films and TV programs that, you know, introduce old films to the modern audience. And, you know, there are all sorts of visual resources that, that have, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and his films have, have survived at a, you know, remarkable rate and been their popularity on YouTube really attests to the continuing popularity of Togo Mizrahi's films. Yeah, that's an interesting archive because it's not a record necessarily of what the state considers important, but of what ordinary people value. Exactly. Egypt is the most obvious candidate for scholars of Arab cinema to write about in terms of the national film industry. And it's, and, and it's well known that most of Egypt's Jewish community left Egypt when Israel became a nation state that was initially in a state of war with Egypt in its early years of independence. And indeed, Egyptian Jews have been caught between Egyptian and Jewish, eventually Israeli nationalism, at least a decade prior to the foundation of Israel. And so how, how does Togo Mizrahi fit within this category of Egyptian national cinema? I mean, do, do people who write about Egyptian cinema acknowledge his place within that category? Thank you for that question. So early Egyptian cinema was very diverse. There were people from a variety of different nationalities, some of them Muslim Masirin, some of them, um, you know, foreigners who came, who were either invited to Egypt or came to Egypt to create cinema, you know, as well as, you know, Egyptian Muslims, Christians, and Jews who were all working together to create this, this cinema. And the diversity reflected in the films is both on screen and off screen. Um, you know, it's, it's available, you can see it in the characterization, particularly in the comedies, you know, the sort of diversity uh, in, in Egypt of this period. This is some of what drew me to these films. But the filmmakers of that era really saw themselves as engaged in a national project, that cinema was going to help produce a, a collective identity that they were fighting for both economic and the place to uh, articulate Egyptianness to and to, to project it to the Egyptian audience. Now, there, you know, Hollywood films and European films were very popular. And as the Egyptian film industry gets started, they, they want to find a place and find screens to, to make these Egyptian stories available to the Egyptian viewership. And Togo Mizrahi was very much a part of that, was a real leader in that movement. By the same token, later film critics have sort of disparaged this period as very heavily influenced by Hollywood, as not necessarily very Egyptian, and as not very nationalist. And, and so there's this real sort of dichotomy between what these filmmakers thought they were doing and how they were being received in the press of the day, and what later critics have attributed to this period. I think there certainly has been a shift in recent years toward looking at the contributions of, of, you know, not just Togo Mizrahi, but other foreign minorities in this period in cinema and in Egyptian culture more broadly. You know, so it's, I think, I think there's, there's an, an increasing dialogue about his place in, in Egyptian cinema and about the, the role of cinema in the 1930s and 40s before yeah. the Egyptian revolution. And of course, one might also say that this whole, whole idea of national cinema is problematic. I mean, I think there's all kinds of national cinemas that aren't necessarily what film critics and film historians say they were. I don't think Egypt is necessarily unique in that regard. 
No, certainly not. Absolutely. I think there's there's a lot of discussion right among scholars and, and film critics about what national cinema means. And you know, on the one hand, we have these structures within the state that you know, sometimes are used to fund films. In this case, there's a sense of this real national project. There's this nationalist sort of impulse that, that the filmmakers are engaged in, that they really see this as part of, you know, establishing an Egyptian national, an independent Egyptian national identity, you know, independent of British colonialism and foreign influence. But at the same time, you know, again, film critics have, and particularly the Egyptian press in in later years, look back to the Egyptian film industry of this period and try to, to delineate what makes Egyptian national cinema in a very narrow terms by who was Egyptian, how many Egyptians were involved in the production of a particular film. And by those counts, Togo Mizrahi's films, I mean, he was not, he was not an Egyptian citizen, are sort of questionable in, in the count of like, where does Egyptian cinema start? And that's a really problematic way of going about understanding what what makes a film Egyptian. The, the flip side, of course, is that from the very beginning, Egyptian films were distributed very broadly. So they had a, a wide audience of Arabic speakers throughout the Middle East and North Africa, but also into Europe and the U.S. Histories of Egyptian cinema also tend to put massive emphasis on the creation of a film production infrastructure. And the thing they always point to is colonial era industrialist Talat Harb's project of creating Studio Misser. But one of the things that your book does, which is, a, I think, a, a big contribution, is to delve into Studio Mizrahi, which was located not in Cairo, but in Alexandria. And uh, I wonder if you could just say a word about Togo Mizrahi as a studio owner and a film producer, and how big a player was he? And has the importance of Studio Mizrahi been obscured by nationalist politics? Well, um, the simple answer to the, the, that final question is, yes, I think that's absolutely true, that his, his, the history of Studio Mizrahi has been obscured by nationalist politics. And I think that is both because of his identity as, as a Jew and as an Italian national, but also because of the Cairo-centric narrative of Egyptian cinema. Early cinema in Egypt was really started in Alexandria. Um, some of the earliest cinema efforts um, took place in Alexandria, and Studio Mizrahi is no exception. So, I mean, he, he starts off working with some actors like uh, Leon Angel, who adopts a screen name Shalom, who doesn't really have a, a, a stage persona, but he also works with comic actors, Fazil Gazeri and his troupe that have the stage presence both, you know, in, you know, in Egypt and as a, a traveling troupe. So um, building on their popularity. And he makes these films in his studio in Alexandria, from the founding of the studio in 1929, his first film comes out, his first efforts come out in 1930 until 1939, when the industry has really gotten established in Cairo and he moves his studio or he moves the, the bulk of his operations to a new studio in Cairo and really becomes a player in the scene there. And we start seeing bigger budget films, less the sort of episodic comedies and more of the big budget musicals and um, bigger budget sort of costume comedies. Would you describe those early films with a lot of which had, you know, Jewish characters and various other characters who contrast with this kind of later tendency for the default characters in Egyptian cinema to always be Muslim? Were those niche films or have we just misunderstood what constituted the mainstream in early Egyptian cinema? 
I don't think that they were niche films. I don't have a lot of information about like box office take and these sorts of things about, you know, and comedies did not earn as much as as musicals, but he's not alone um, in the kinds of representation of minorities and what I identify as uh, an idiom, uh, a Levantine idiom, that is a kind of shape-shifting idiom that plays with ideas of identity. And this is both the interrelationships between, you know, particularly Muslims and Jews and masquerade and costuming and pretending to be someone you're not, um, which was very common in Egyptian comedy, but also gender play. So um, gender and sexuality um, get played with a lot. And when we look at someone like Asya Dagger's comedies from this period, I mean, those that have survived, there's a lot of this going on. Um, and we see this in other films. Um, Nagib Rahani's work also does some of this. So we, we see that this is not an idiom that is only attributable to Togo Mizrahi, but something that's happening in 1930s comedy that you know, clearly has a market if more than one, one troupe or one filmmaker is doing it. So I don't think of them as niche films. Um, I've certainly heard people argue that the Shalom films were not very popular with Egyptian audiences, but I, I, don't, I don't know that we can say that quite definitively. Um, certainly in the early years, some of Togo Mizrahi's films did not get nearly as much press in the Cairo-centric publications, but that was true of the other Alexandria-based studios as well. And he, he was sort of a, media, a little bit media shy. He didn't like to give interviews. He didn't like to you know, uh, reveal anything about his movies until they were released. And I, I get the sense that he didn't have, he didn't spend as much in his advertising budget and therefore didn't get as much coverage. And so I think all of these things came to play in the early years, even though you know, his films tended to be very well reviewed and he had a lot of respect of the press. They thought he was a real professional and they generally liked the quality of his films. You preempted my next question, which was going to be about uh, you know, the, the, this concept of the Levantine, but you touched on another thing I wanted to ask about, which is that Togo Mizrahi films remain popular with Arabic speaking film audiences and audiences don't really seem to care whether or not the director was Jewish despite the polemics of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Although it also has to be said that a lot of audiences identify more with actors than the directors. I mean, you know, sort of a typical person will say, you know, an Um Kulthum film or a Leila Murad film. And it's possible, I mean, it's just speculative, but I would say that maybe the most popular Togo Mizrahi films over the long haul, and it's many decades at this point, were the ones that he made featuring the singer Leila Murad. I think there were at least four of them. And Leila Murad, like Mizrahi, was Jewish, though she did convert to Islam, um, and she never left Egypt. These are also facts that are well known at a general level by people who love Egyptian films. So who was Leila Murad, and what did Togo Mizrahi try to do with her talents? I mean, she kind of appears, you know, sort of at the intermediate point between his Alexandria years and his Cairo years. Right. So Leila Murad was an Egyptian Jewish singer who already had um, a recording presence on Egyptian radio by the time she started working with Togo Mizrahi. She had made a film, uh, Yahya al-Hub, uh, with uh, Muhammad Abdul Wahab. And in 1939, Togo Mizrahi approaches her to make a film. So the, the first film he makes in Cairo is a film starring Leila Murad. So this is sort of the big splash into the, the Kyrene, you know, 
studio and um, working with Cairo-based, you know, support staff. Some of his his staff um, moves with him from Alexandria, but it was a they were a pretty scrappy bunch working with just a handful of people making these productions. And things really expand when he moves to to Cairo. So this first film is. Leila Mumtara on a rainy night, starring Leila Murad and Yusuf Wahbi, who is a sort of theater impresario and actor, very well-known figure of melodrama in particular, who also had forayed into, into cinema before. But what really happens through this collaboration is that rather than appearing aside, alongside you know, the most famous male uh, singer, performer, recording artist, in, in Egypt, Mohammed Abdul Wahab, um, she becomes the singing sensation of a film with a, an actor who does not sing, right? Who's known for his, his acting and his melodrama. And she becomes, she's able to really grow into her roles in, through her collaboration with Togo Mizrahi. Her identity and her star power grow enormously. He recognizes her potential and really, you know, he lights her well. He, you know, he gives her, he, you know, he, he puts her, you know, really at the center of the narrative and um, really allows her to, um, you know, to develop her on-screen persona and works on sort of marketing this, you know, in the, in the press. And so over the course of their relationship, we know that her, the salary that she commands, um, you know, increases sort of exponentially as the, her popularity grows. And so I think this is incredibly mutually beneficial um, period for both of them that, you know, his place in the cinema industry grows alongside, her, you know, her rising stardom. Mm. Well, yeah, I must say that Togo Mizrahi made her look a lot better than she did in, uh, in Yahil Hub, um, where, where she, she, she was decided, I mean, she did sing in it, but she was decided the second fiddle next to Abdul Ham. Um, by the time Mizrahi left Egypt, which, if I'm not mistaken, was 1948, is that correct? No. Um, so it he it's it's after 1952. 1952, okay. after the the Cairo fires, but before the revolution, is where it appears that he has. I mean, in, in 1946, so he, his wife was Italian. It was someone he had met. He, he would take uh, regular trips to Europe um, and come back. The press always reported on his returns to Egypt um, with new European equipment. Um, and so this is how we know, you know about his travels in those years. But on one of those trips, he, he met his wife, who was from, from Italy. She moved with him to Egypt. They spend the years of World War II in Egypt. And then um, in 1946, they they get an apartment in Rome and they start sort of going back and forth. I and mean, she was never entirely happy in Egypt. And so um, there's a, a movement back and forth, but really 1952 is when it appears that he makes Rome his primary residence. And he goes back to visit Egypt after that. But it appears that his, you know, he's, he's essentially relocated to- He's to not Rome. working anymore at that point. So, so in those last- years when he was working, he worked with most of the really, at least many of the really big figures in early Egyptian cinema. I mean, as you've already said, he worked with Yusuf Wahbi, he worked with Leila Murad and kind of made her much bigger than she had been when she started, but also with Hussein Sidki, Fatima Rushdi, Amina Rizk, Anwar Wegdi, Leila Fauzi, and Um Kulthum. So in order to do this, did he have to sacrifice the levantineness of his early work in order to sort of get in sync with these bigger names in the film industry. And also at a time when arguably Egyptian nationalism was 
perhaps not favoring the kind of Levantineness that he had uh, kind of cut his teeth on. Or on the contrary, were there still distinctive Togo Mizrahi features in those later films? So I would divide this by genre. So, you know, the comedies continue to be Levantine style comedies, even as the, the visibility of minorities within the films decreases. But certainly the, the gender play, the sexuality, you know, cross-dressing, you know, the various kinds of shape-shifting and masquerade that also characterize Levantine are very much still present in, uh, in the comedies. Um, the musicals, much less so. And I, I don't know whether to attribute this to a kind of normativizing, whether this, again, is a, sh a shift in genre, whether this is just, a, as you just laid out, you know, a shift in a sense of what it means to be Egyptian, what the politics of the period are. But I think one of the really key moments that we see evidence of this kind of Levantinism in a, a musical are in the film Salama, which uh, features, uh, which stars uh, Um Kulsum. And that film is actually the one film that is, he, he was a writer, director, producer, and early, very, very early on a sometime actor in his films. Um, by, the time, by the time we get to, to Salama, this is a film, this is a real collaboration. And um, he's working with a, a script that's based on a novel. The script uh, was written by somebody else. The, it's being produced by somebody else. Um, um Kulsum, you know, has enormous clout over how things are, you know, how her character is portrayed on screen. And so, um, so this is the film where he has sort of the least influence over its entire arc. And yet we see some, some of these distinctive elements. Um, one of the things I argue about this film is, you know, the, this, in the story, Um Kulsum is uh, a singing slave girl and she it passes from one hand to another um, over the course of the film. And one of the things that, um, um is very concerned about and one of the reasons why she particularly likes these these singing slave girl characters and these sort of historical dramas is because it doesn't um, put her into the eye of various kinds of you know the complications of you know modern you know sexuality questions about women and objectification of women on screen and one of the complicating factors of this um, having been sold from one to another is that these the Cayenne, the singing slave girls would have been, you know, sexually available to their owners, you know, in, historically, right? And so Togo Misrahi uses this Levantine idiom to, to kind of diffuse the masculinity of some of her owners. Um, so sort of to diffuse any possible reading of the film as um, somebody, her, her owner having had sex with the um, with the slave girl. And so, so it's this really interesting use of this kind of um, gender play and sexuality that um, we see very, very evident in the comedies that he directs and a way that he, he taps into that work to, you know, to tell this, this story. And so um, it's, it's a really interesting moment because we see in the film where he has sort of the least control, we still see evidence of this Levantine idiom. Mm. Yeah, and Uncle Fum, of course, built her career on maintaining this kind of chaste persona, public persona. So, yeah, it's very, very interesting indeed. One final question. Do you have a favorite Togo Mizrahi film? Ooh, that's a tough one. Well, I, I actually, I, I always come back to, in my work, to the Alez um, Bahdala mistreated by affluence. But when it comes to favorites, I, I may actually have to land on Sa'a Seba at 7 o'clock, which 
is this just crazy comedy that I, I started this conversation out with, a reading of the opening scene of that film. This is a, a film starring Ali Kassar, who is, again, a, a, a comic actor, stage persona, had a traveling troupe, and made quite a number of films with Togo Mizrahi. And, and this is just this really crazy film where he essentially has a dream that he's being chased for, uh, he's, that he's, he's absconded with, with funds or he's being suspected of absconding with funds. And it, it just gets more and more crazy as the film goes along until you realize it's a dream. But he, in the course of it, he dresses as a woman. He becomes newbie. You know, he, he, he embraces the newbie-ness of this character that he, his, his stage persona um, and his on-screen persona. He goes to Nubia, there's a Nubian wedding. And there, there are all sorts of elements to this film that I think um, make it really, really interesting to me and you know, a lot of fun to watch and you know, has a lot of this, this the Levantine um, masquerade and shape-shifting that, that I find so compelling. Fantastic. Your book really has brought out a lot of the flavor of Egyptian cinema. And it's the flavor of Egyptian cinema which people continue to love. I mean, you probably have had the experience of telling people you're working on Egyptian cinema and them responding, oh, the old films are so much better than the new films. And they often mean, you know, precisely these films which remain popular even today, thanks to the slightly illegal, but the <laughs> magic of YouTube. So I really want to thank you for this book. I think it's a, you know, it's a wonderful contribution to Egyptian cinema uh, and it's been a pleasure talking to you. Do you have anything else you would like to add? Well, I guess the one thing I would like to add is that the book is available open access, so anyone can download it and read it for free um, at the University of California website. Wow, that's a very good thing to mention. Yes, and thank you very, very much for having me. I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's been a pleasure. I've been speaking with author Deborah Starr about her book, Togo Mizrahi and the Making of Egyptian Cinema, and this has been Middle East Center Book Talk. Thank you for listening, and goodbye from Oxford. <laughs>